This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, John Barquette. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I am your host for this week, John Barquette. I'm the Director of Policy Affairs at Wills Towers Watson and an alumnus of the Wharton Healthcare Management MBA program. If you have a question or a comment for today's show, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our lines are open. Coming up on today's show, we are going to look at the current state uh, and the future of the medical marijuana industry. My guests for the show today are uh, Peter Conti-Brown, who's the Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at Wharton. And Peter recently wrote a compelling brief that analyzes the issues surrounding marijuana banking. Peter is here with me in the studio. Thank you for joining and welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. On the phone with me is Aaron Smith, who's the co-founder and executive director of the National Cannabis Industry Association, the largest trade association representing legal cannabis businesses in the U.S. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Aaron, I want to start off with you. Uh, Set the stage for us today on where uh, the states are in legalizing medical cannabis. Well, um, it's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, 46 states have some form of a medical cannabis law on the books. Um, Some of them are are very limited programs. Uh, There are 29 states that have full-blown medical marijuana programs with uh, dispensaries that sell medical cannabis to, to patients uh, and uh, have successfully replaced the criminal market for, for medical cannabis in almost uh, every state across the country. And and the states are taking the lead on this. Uh, explain to us the difference between state regulation of, of medical marijuana and where we are federally. Well, unfortunately, uh, it's taken quite a bit uh, of time for the federal government to catch up to the the will of the voters. And uh, under federal law, uh, marijuana in any form is still uh, illegal, and we're existing under prohibition. Uh, but uh, as states uh, under the federalist system that our that our nation uh, has has have moved away from prohibition and have um, created their own programs that are in conflict with federal law, uh, but are effectively working to uh, to serve the patients, and uh, you know it's it's incumbent upon Congress to finally change federal law, bring it up to date with the, the will of the voters, of which, by the way, nine out of ten support medical cannabis at this point. Uh, it's a very very politically popular issue, uh, and it's time for Congress to change those laws. So I thought a harbinger of where this was all going. Uh, we felt we we saw earlier this year when the former Speaker of the House John Boehner joined the board of. Uh, a cannabis company, Acreage Holdings, uh, even though he had previously said he was unalterably opposed uh, to legalization. What does this say about the for the future of legal marijuana? Well, we are seeing uh, more and more mainstream support for not just medical marijuana, but fully regulated adult use programs uh, every day. And uh, uh, former Speaker Boehner's um, statement is one of many. Uh, these you know, mainstream supporters that have changed their tune on the issue, and, and you know, and I think it's really because, you know, we've had medical cannabis for on the books in states like California for over 20 years. Uh, we're going on five years of adult use uh, legalization in Colorado and Washington, and these programs are are working. They're working very well. Uh, we in just the five states that have legal adult use cannabis, uh, they generated almost 800 million dollars in tax revenue. Uh, just last year, in 2017, uh, the sky isn't falling. And in fact, in any of these states, uh, and in fact, uh, crime is down, teen use is down, opioid overdoses are down in states with, with access to medical cannabis. And by every possible measure, uh, these laws are working, and it's really hard to, to deny uh, those facts. And I think that's what's leading to the, the shift in uh, not only public opinion, but in the opinion of some of the, the conservative uh, members of Congress that we're seeing come forward. This sounds like a slam dunk at the polls. What is holding back 
Um, well, let's start with states. Are, are there any states that are currently uh, uh, scheduled to vote on legalizing um, medical cannabis in the in the short term here? Uh, yeah, we have um, Oklahoma is actually uh, voting on this very soon. This week is uh, what I saw. Is that uh, right or no? Right this week. Um, so we're we're going to see uh, you know possible movement in Oklahoma uh, in November. Uh, Utah has this on the ballot as well as Missouri. Uh, and we're you know we're talking about very very conservative red states, uh, and the polling in all of those states is looking really good, uh, because you know there's there's hardly anybody anymore that thinks that patients should be put behind bars for using a medicine that's frankly safer than many over the counter medicines and certainly prescription opioids. To get these vote are these all referendums in these states? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so the voters are going to decide why why haven't legislatures in in some of these states taken up um, the cause through you know and just put it into a bill and said let's have a vote on this. I mean, many have. Uh, you know, like I said, we have at this point forty six states with some kind of legal medical cannabis program. Many of those were passed through the legislative process, uh, and now we're you know many states are now looking to expand their programs to apply to the adult use market. Uh, just days after Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, backtracked on, you know, the Department of Justice policy uh, on deferring the state issues, uh, states' rights on these issues, uh, Vermont, through its legislature, became the first state uh, to legalize cannabis for all adults through the legislative process. Uh, New Jersey is on track to do the same, and uh, we're going to continue to see this this progress. I, I think extend into the next year and, and until we finally get to the point where. Uh, Congress passes a law and it's signed by the president uh, that allows states to uh, to develop their own policies around marijuana because prohibition is simply not working. Uh, For those of you just joining in, you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And I'm John Barquette, and this hour we are talking about the business of medical marijuana with Aaron Smith, co-founder and executive director of the National Cannabis Industry Association, and Peter Conti Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at Wharton. If you want to join the conversation, our lines are open. Give us a call at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 We're going to bring Peter into the conversation in just a second, but Aaron, set the stage for us. When a state legalizes medical marijuana, what, what then happens from an industry perspective? Well, many of this, you know, because this is a state-based movement where, you know, we have state laws that vary uh, sometimes wildly from, from state to state, uh, that, that, that answer can be complicated. But um, typically, uh, the state sets up a regulatory regime for uh, the production and manufacture and sale of medical cannabis to patients, a registry system for patients uh, who, uh, who meet certain qualifying conditions uh, to register through the state so that they can legally obtain and possess the cannabis. Uh, and from an industry perspective, uh, you know, what that means is that uh, we, rather than seeing uh, med- you know, medical patients having to go to the criminal market or the drug dealers, in a, you know, on the, on the streets or in the parks, they're now able to go into a safe uh, retail location, uh, secured medical, medical-grade cannabis that's been tested for uh, its purity and safety uh, and for the cannabinoid profile. Uh, and have confidence that they're, you know, that they have a safe medicine, and that's the 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 trend uh, happening across the country uh, over the last several years. Is, is regulating this works so much better than than leaving it in the hands of a criminal market. So let me ask Peter Conti Brown about that. Peter, uh, you've written recently about how medical cannabis companies or um, other companies up or down the supply chain are having trouble banking putting their cash into an institution. Some of them, at least I've read reports of them keeping cash in all sorts of creative ways uh, because they can't access banks. Could you tell us what the landscape is like right then and we'll follow up? So from the description we've just heard, which is um, uh, it sounds like what uh, medical and other other uses of cannabis – suggests is that this is just a shiny example of federalism, right? The laboratories of democracy Mm -hmm. where states – uh, can try different things, and then we can generate information about the virtues or vices associated with different policy maneuvers. Uh, but that's actually not entirely true, right? Uh, we are getting some of that, no question. I'm not challenging, obviously, the um, 
what what has happened. But the problem is is that because uh, federal law is is so consistent about uh, about classifying uh, cannabis uh, as as uh, a, an illegal and controlled substance. Banking follows federal law, mm-hmm. right? So banking doesn't exist in a kind of federalist uh, experiment because the payment system and anti-money laundering laws, those two in particular, and then bank examination and supervision are across the country. And so uh, is the you know the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City put in a in a recent uh, litigation filing. Companies that are engaged in any kind of use of, of marijuana, whatever the state legal justification, would be the same as you know trading uh, uh, with Iran under sanctions or uh, importing endangered species or something like that. Right? It's just illegal and it can't be done. And so any um, any any banking associated with illegal activity goes through an extremely rigorous process through bank supervision, making it so that banks. Are, are extremely reluctant to do it. Now, that was true even before uh, Sessions withdrew the guidance that had been uh, promulgated during the Obama administration. And so where we are today is that, uh, you know, if I were, uh, if I were advising a bank uh, in Oregon or, or in, uh, in Washington, Colorado, or any of the places that have really been pushing for, for broader use of, of marijuana from a business perspective, I would still say, don't do it. Uh, the The risks are extremely high, uh, just from a regulatory perspective, and so because of the federal government's posture here, that laboratory of democracy is extremely thwarted. It also seems like the risks will be would be high having all of these burgeoning companies keeping stacks of cash in yeah. their closets or their back rooms. That that seems like a recipe for for more crime, frankly. Oh, I, I mean, it's unquestionably true. So the risks I was describing are the risks of, uh, you know, enforcement actions or compliance violations on the banking side. So what does that mean? Well, um, we were talking earlier about, you know, the $800 million of, of tax revenues that have been received. But it's worth thinking about, well, what's the mechanism by which those tax revenues are being paid, not through the banking system by and large? People showing up with can- canvas bags full of bills trying to, to uh, satisfy their tax bill. <laughs> That's a recipe for the kinds of dangers you're talking about, security yeah. dangers. That's not just from taxes. That's from receipts generally. Um, but it's also a recipe for tax evasion. Um, you know, I want to know more about that $800 million figure. Uh, is it substantially less than we'd expect for similarly sized industries? I'd expect the answer to be that would be yes. And what's the reason for that? Is it because man- marijuana-related businesses are uh, more into tax evasion than other industries? I don't think so. It's because there is no banking apparatus set up to allow them to to participate in this system. And I think, you know, I'm a banking expert, not a not a cannabis expert, but I think people take for granted just how much, especially the payment system, your ability to use credit cards and cash checks and transfer uh, uh, money from relatively seamlessly from one bank to the next. That affects everything we do in the economy and indeed in society. Um, and then. To deprive an industry of that mechanism is is a pretty extraordinary uh, limit on growth there. You're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm John Barquette, and today my guests are Wharton Professor Peter Conti-Brown and Aaron Smith, the co-founder and executive director of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Feel free to join our conversation by giving us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. It's 1-844-942-7866. Aaron, uh, I want to ask you, uh, what position have you uh, and your organization taken on these banking rules that are currently prohibiting um, uh, industry, the industry, the cannabis industry from using banks to do to do business? Have you guys, uh, I'm sure you have advocated, what have you, what have your positions been? What are you, what are you advocating for? Yeah, well, I, and I I can't disagree with anything that Peter said, that uh, while we have successfully replaced the criminal market uh, for marijuana in uh, eight states for adult use and 29 states for medical cannabis, and we're seeing crime drop across the board in those states. It is a uh, a real shame that we have this government-manufactured banking crisis in which, uh, as as Peter mentioned, we have uh, members of our industry that are just simply trying to pay their taxes, their utility bills, their payroll, uh, and are having, in many cases, to go you know outside of the banking system to do so. Uh, we support uh, legislation in Congress, bipartisan legislation called the Safe Banking Act, which would uh, resolve this situation by carving out an exemption for state-licensed businesses uh, in, under the Bank Secrecy Act so that 
uh, financial institutions could bank the industry without fear of prosecution under those money laundering laws uh, under the Bank Secrecy Act. Uh, and, you know, this legislation has uh, almost 100 co-sponsors on the House side, uh, significant bipartisan support because hardly anybody, uh, wherever you land on the cannabis issue generally, hardly anybody wants to see uh, a $10 billion industry and quickly growing industry operating outside of the banking system. Uh, and really, it's incumbent upon Congress uh, to pass that legislation uh, and finally uh, bring about a solution to something that is, you know, again, a, a manufactured problem by federal law. And it doesn't need to exist this way. Drug dealers aren't trying to pay their taxes. They aren't trying to comply with, with the laws. Uh, we want to see uh, federal law respect those responsible businesses that are, that are acting in compliance with state laws, paying their taxes, uh, and allow uh, that that to continue, and that's what that's what popular you know popular opinion is also on our side too. We're seeing 70% of American voters don't think the federal government should be interfering in state laws, and banking is a is one of the biggest uh, parts of that that interference that we're seeing today. I presume the banks are with you as well on this. We are seeing uh, more and more uh, of this, especially the smaller community banks and credit unions coming forward, willing to bank the industry uh, and advocating for the changes that are needed in federal law. Um, I, I would point out that uh, while uh, the statutes you know, do prohibit uh, banking, the cannabis industry, there has been some guidance that was put out by the financial, uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the Treasury, uh, under the last administration uh, that outlined sort of a roadmap for how banks could legally uh, do business with our industry. Uh, and that guidance is still in place. Uh, when uh, Jeff Sessions, who's at this point probably one of the last people in this country that, that supports arresting people for medical cannabis, uh, when he rolled back the DOJ guidelines, he did so you know, really in a vacuum. He was on an island. He didn't coordinate with Treasury. He didn't coordinate with anybody in Congress. Uh, and so that the Treasury guidance that was put forth during the Obama administration is still in place. And Secretary Mnuchin even said that he agreed that uh, these, you know, that the state compliant businesses should not have to operate. And I think he said, you know, with duffel bags full of cash. Peter, would you like to weigh in on this? Yeah. So the FinCEN guidance, I think, is important. There are a couple of compl- complexities there that, uh, that where Jeff Sessions isn't acting uh, in a vacuum. So first is the FinCEN guidance said we're going to follow the Cole Memorandum, as it's called, right, which is the DOJ guidance uh, issued into the Obama administration. That's the memorandum. Remind our no, listeners who, who FinCEN is. Oh, sorry. FinCEN is the Treasury Coordinated Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Okay. Right. Um, so this is stuff like, you know, fighting drugs and terrorists through the, the payments to the financial system. And that, again, is located. It's a it's a um, it's a task force that reflects participation from banking regulators, Treasury, DOJ and the like. Um, so FinCEN says we're going to follow the Department of Justice, right? And the Department of Justice has now said we're not going to follow the past Department of Justice. And Aaron is absolutely correct that FinCEN has not done what Sessions has done and said, all right, we're revoking our earlier guidance. But if the earlier guidance is pointing to something that no longer has legal effect, then that at the very least creates ambiguity. Um, and so I think it's deeply problematic to rely on 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 FinCEN's past articulations here, given how how Sessions uh, the Sessions DOJ has changed their posture. The second part of it, though, is that that's all that you know. Uh, that FinCEN is is uh, a very important uh, aspect of criminal uh, banking enforcement, but the day to day of banking isn't involving FinCEN. It's involving bank examination and supervision, which is a state federal partnership. But uh, it's a state-federal partnership where states are, enforce, are are examining and supervising compliance with federal law, even for very small banks. And there, despite the fact that uh, you know governors from Washington and Colorado, uh, activists, uh, I'm sure Aaron himself has probably been weighing in on this, just pushing the banking regulators and supervisors to give clarity. They haven't done so. And not only have they not done so, but they've in some cases, taking quite a hostile posture mm. uh, toward attempts at innovation here. Uh, the biggest example is uh, is in Colorado, a credit union that was created in transparently to assist marijuana-related businesses. Um, what you would exactly expect for a, a, a burgeoning industry uh, to have uh, and uh, their ability to get access to the payment system uh, was stopped by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Mm. 
they sued, the fourth corner credit union sued, and the uh, and the Fed won in court. And so that's where we are today, and that's why it's so deeply unsettled. I think that, that Aaron's absolutely correct. The only solution here is not administrative, it's legislative. And so if Congress doesn't do anything, then you're just in the sea of ambiguity where elections can uh, yank a chain uh, that had previously given a lot of slack to an industry. It's very hard to build uh, a long-term business there uh, on that basis. You're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. We'd love you to join our conversation uh, on medical marijuana. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Peter, let me ask you another question. Is yeah. What you guys have been talking about, uh, if you take a step back, you can kind of see there's momentum building for uh, – medical marijuana to become legalized in the country. It's grown up to about 30 states where you can uh, get medical marijuana legally in your state. There's still conflict with what the federal laws are and how it classifies marijuana. Are there other examples of either substances or other types of products that have evolved over time uh, that we might look to to kind of get a sense for where this is all going? The best example is both sides of the prohibition enthusiasm, right, as it, it ramped up and ramped down in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This was absolutely a laboratory of democracy kind of experiment. Different states were moving in different directions. Um, and then a federal enthusiasm in the other direction starts to build quite dramatically with the temperance movement as the activists driving that ship. And so then federal prohibition of alcohol uh, comes into place. And then watching... Uh, that process walked down. Now, again, this leads to the gang wars in Chicago and uh, a burst of illegal activity associated with prohibition. Some of the results are ambiguous in terms of what its consequences were for health uh, in some pockets. that were, We saw dramatic health improvements and others uh, dramatically worse uh, uh, situations. But then the activism around the repeal of prohibition at the constitutional level, interestingly enough, uh, was to say, let's let the laboratories of democracy yeah. run again. So the repeal of prohibition didn't impose a new federal standard. It said that states can make their own determinations. And this is why in some counties and some states you'll still see there are these laws that prohibit either the sale of alcohol uh, above a certain kind of content or on certain days. So no purchase of alcohol could happen on Sundays in some counties in Alabama or something like that. And that's still legal, right, because states can make that determination. So it's true that momentum, as Aaron says, is moving dramatically quickly. Uh, it reminds me very much of... Uh, the American embrace of, of gay marriage uh, in terms of how short and how quick this is moving. But, you know, my, uh, my PhD is in, in history, and I'll tell you that the cycles of history can turn uh, gradually. And so we can see this enthusiasm uh, explode, but then also see it move uh, in different directions. It can zag as much as zig. And frankly, I think this is one of the most important things that troubles me about the, the federal policy prohibiting bank participation in this experiment. Aaron cited a lot of statistics about the benefits of legalizing marijuana, but in reality, the the size of those effects from a social science perspective are extremely small and sometimes might be incorrect. They're within the margin of error. And we the problem is that we're not getting the informational content you would want when you have something like a border shared by Colorado and Utah, but dramatically different laws, laws. in effect. When you get that, you get a natural experiment to say, well, then what is the consequence here? And we're not actually getting that natural experiment Why the way not? we want because of the federal banking prohibition. I see. Because Colorado, what we're seeing is even as this ramps up, there are significant players who would create more stability and safety into the system that would give us a better sense of what this the consequences are of this change. Uh, and right now we're seeing these minor effects that – are ambiguous with relatively low participation. Uh, and so the informational content that, would, that should guide our policymaking is, is significantly hampered. Aaron, would you care to co comment? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we also, you know, when you compare this to alcohol prohibition, um, it's important to note that you know, alcohol prohibition only existed for 13 years. And uh, this, you know, marijuana prohibition has been in place for over 80 years. And uh, but when when cannabis was first made illegal, it was a, it was hardly it was a little known substance that was hardly used by you know many people at exception medical uh, certain medical applications, and over the last few decades has exploded into you know becoming a very popular substance, and 
cannabis is being used is being used regardless of where you know state or federal law is. And the question is whether or not it should be regulated, uh, not whether or not people should be using it. People use it regardless. And so I, I absolutely agree with Peter that there you know there has been some uh, negative effects, especially around the banking issue, that are not that are unnecessary. Uh, we you know we should be able to you know, have transactions within the banking system so that there's more traceability and more opportunity to regulate and monitor and, and, and reduce crime. And as far as, you know, uh, state, you know, state to state differences, uh, you know, we support the, the laboratories of democracy and allowing states to develop the policies that work best for those, for those states. Uh, and federal law needs to get out of the way to allow that to happen. We have a call from Jordan in Colorado. Jordan, you're on the business of healthcare. Thanks for the call. Hey guys, uh, Jordan here. I've got uh, kids in school, and um, I don't participate in uh, marijuana, uh, or I, I support I support the um, the legalization of it. But I'm not quite sure I understand the benefits to people who aren't um, who aren't using it recreationally or medically. Could you could you talk in, about the case and, and the people that are, are trying to make the pitch? And also, um, how do they communicate to citizens like me who who, who want to understand the the upside? Thank you for your question, Jordan. Aaron, why don't you take a shot at that? Well, you know, whether you use cannabis or not, uh, having marijuana put behind a regulated counter is beneficial for society as a whole. Uh, if, you know, again, this is a very popular substance and left to the criminal market, uh, the, the transactions that are happening to, to, you know, the purchases of marijuana are happening uh, and enriching criminal drug cartels, gangs, uh, and some really bad guys um, by having cannabis regulated like it is in Colorado. Uh, we are support, you know, the, the consumers of the product are now have an opportunity to support small businesses that are thriving, paying, you know, creating jobs, paying taxes and otherwise investing in the economies in the state uh, in, in an above board legitimate manner. And so there are uh, significant, you know, significant benefits to regulating marijuana as opposed to allowing it to, to continue uh, to be only available through a criminal market. Uh, Peter, you mentioned earlier that maybe, though, we're not getting as robust of studies as we might otherwise like, in part because uh, the industry just can't take off because it's the brakes are still on because it can't access the banking system. Right. Do you agree with directionally with what Aaron was saying? I think I think here we might have a disagreement, and I think that it's true that prohibitions like this, criminal prohibitions on in all kinds of activities, do not ever eliminate. There's no such thing as a perfect criminal enforcement mechanism that uh, that makes it so that, however heinous the crime, that you never see that activity again. But there's simply no question that legal, and indeed this is the motivation behind legalization, is that people will still use cannabis no matter what, but different people will use it if it's legal. People will use it more if it's legal, and the patterns and consequences of uh, the substance use uh, will change if it's legalized. So this is a very big deal, right? And Aaron, of course, has uh, devoted himself to explaining why, how big a deal this is. So the question is, and this is the question that, uh, that our, our listener poses to us, well, then what's the consequence of this, right? So if you look at this kind of from almost from the level of political theory, government shouldn't be in the role of, of prohibiting us where the activity is costless to all, mm. right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't pass laws that say you can't do X when X doesn't, not only doesn't hurt anyone else, it doesn't hurt you. And the question is, what does cannabis use do? Does it hurt other people? Does it hurt the people who use it themselves? Now, the, the long, Jeff Sessions of the world would say, absolutely, it makes you dumber, it makes you dangerous, it will increase all kinds of different things, and they'll cite different studies talking about the, uh, the harmful side effects of, of cannabis use. Uh, I'm mostly agnostic on this because we don't have these kinds of good experiments that you'd want to see state by state because of the federal banking uh, uh, situation. Um, and so I would, I'm, I'm pretty eager to see the consequences of this. And I don't know that it would be good for, um, uh, for America to have access to legal cannabis. I'm not sure how that would, would that work? Would that be good for educational attainment, job participation, other kinds of factors? I simply don't know. I have, my priors are, are, are extremely neutral on that point. Um, well, so I would hope to see then 
uh, an ability to get answers to these questions as opposed to simply you know ideological assertions in one direction or another. Yeah, the question of legalizing marijuana is a big one. The question of uh, uh, legalizing it for medical purposes, a more narrow question, uh, does seem to have a lot of support, at least when you look at polls and it's mm-hmm. being tried in, in more states than the states who have legalized it altogether. I'm also thrilled to welcome to the show, uh, by phone, Etienne Fontan, who's the vice president and co-owner of Berkeley Patients Group, the nation's oldest medical cannabis dispensary in the country. Etienne, thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, Etienne, describe for our listeners, what what is a a cannabis dispensary? A medical cannabis dispensary is a location that is uh, we supply uh, medical cannabis and allow access to medical patients to come through the door uh, with a doctor's note or state card. And okay, so you have to have a, either a, what is a state card? The state card is a uh, it's issued by the local uh, county health department, and it is basically a ID card which shows from the state that you've been. Uh, authorized as a medical patient that you have gone through a doctor, you've proven your residency uh, in the state, and then for a $100 fee, uh, the state will issue a card that is good for one year. Uh, That allows you to come into a dispensary, but due to the new laws as of January 1st, it allows you a significant uh, discount in taxation. Approximately, it's around 30% uh, for tax. Uh, with a medical card, it is reduced in California to only 15% currently. Okay, those are California laws you're referring to? Correct. We are uh, in California, so these are California laws that I am reflecting upon. Okay, and the Berkeley Patients Group, is that is that a, is it one center, or are you guys all over the state or in other states? Uh, we are located, Berkeley Patients Group is located in Berkeley as a singular location, but I have other dispensaries in the state of Nevada known as New Leaf in Las Vegas and in Incline Village. So I'm in multiple states. Okay. And so what are we talking here? On a, on a typical day, how many customers do you have coming into to the Berkeley Patients Group? Uh, you could see anywhere from 400 to 800 people on a, any given business day, and we're open seven days a week. And what's a typical purchase? Um, well, it has changed significantly since January 1st. We've been dealing specifically with medical patients. As of January 1st, we were permitted to sell for adult use. And so that has taken a significant change. We have a, about 200 different SKUs in our lineup of everything from smokable uh, forms of flowers, concentrates, uh, then going into things such as pills, topicals, patches, etc., that have been developed over the past 18 years by medical patients who uh, did not have access to medications that worked for them. So the majority of these products were created by patients for patients. And now with the adult use, uh, most of the adults over the age of 21 are benefiting from the 18-plus years of laboratory work that the medical patients uh, have actually gone through to bring products to the uh, legal market. That's fascinating that, that the the innovators, the product innovators in the cannabis industry are, are the patients themselves. It had to be because in the absence of pharmaceuticals or any types of companies that would deal with it, um, most of these patients have been reliant on pharmaceuticals. So they've looked for alternatives, and in the absence of being able to find it, they've created something that works for them. So therefore, they create a business and bring it to market, and we've been very successful over the past 18 years to uh, foster that type of environment so that the market could decide for itself. On that point, Etienne uh, or Aaron, did either of you see the news yesterday that a there? I think there maybe is a new medical form of cannabis that what was that news? Did you guys see that? Epidiolex. That is actually from GW Pharmaceuticals um, out of England, and that is a CBD uh, tincture, um, one of the compounds. They had previously uh, had a um, product called Sativex, which was a THC oral spray, but it didn't seem to uh, pass um, all the studies as successfully as Epidiolex has. So Epidiolex is the first cannabis-derived currently that we know of that is not synthetic form. So is this, is this significant? I mean, is this, does this mark a, uh, you know, sort of a new chapter in, in big medicine getting involved in, in cannabis? Aaron, I'll reflect to you on this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, uh, I think it's, it's great to see that the research 
uh, has been you know moving forward and and creating uh, you know pharmaceuticalized you know cannabis preparations like Epidiolex, uh, but that does not supplant the need for whole plant medicines uh, that have been you know the patients have been using for you know frankly millennia. Uh, and I, as I see it, you know this these two industries can operate in parallel. The pharmaceutical industry uh, should continue to move forward with <coughs> cannabis-based medicines. Uh, while the state-based cannabis industries, that the cottage industry that uh, that, that we represent, uh, is filling a different niche, and uh, I see this as, as really actually great progress uh, for for both. Etienne, let's get back to your dispensary on it. You got day-to-day basis. You say you might have 400 to 800 people walk into your store. You got a big boost once cannabis was legalized in California, starting January 1st this year. Um, what's the typical purchase size? Are we talking about? 15 bucks or is this a several hundred dollar purchase uh, usually it's around 70 to a hundred dollars depending on um, product that they're looking for people are looking for convenience so um, most of the older patients uh, if I would say that flowers are still the most popular uh, then second would be um, vapor cartridges people are looking for alternatives to uh, smoking and uh, by having products that are distilled down into a cartridge form, it makes it uh, easy and accessible for a wide range of people. So one of the more popular pro- products, I would have to say, would be cartridge pens and batteries. Um, that's what batteries to actually activate the cartridge. Because I see. The cartridges are activated by either pressing a button and inhaling or inhaling directly, and your draw of inhalation actually triggers the uh, vaporizer to work. So these are the portable type of options that are available to people. But I would say uh, increasing in popularity are things like edibles, um, pills, uh, patches. It runs the whole gamut. So there's no necessarily to say that an average purchase is, you know, a flower, a concentrate, et cetera. It literally is dependent on on what individuals are looking for and needing, and it runs the full spectrum so it's hard to necessarily narrow it down i could give you approximately like i say around what a number what their spending is but to say uh purchase is exactly this is non-existent have you talked to alice waters yet about co-branding with shea panisse on some edibles and your dispenser (laughs) we would love to do things like that (laughs) but um right now we're just concentrating on dealing with uh the legalities we're right now under the second instance of emergency regulations in the state of California because they don't have their full act together currently. They're, they're helping us arrive there, but it has necessarily been a challenge for such a large state of California to get everybody up to speed, and it's taken longer than initially thought. So we're still waiting for full regulations to come. I want to ask you about those challenges. Uh, first, let me do a reset and see if anyone wants to call in. You're listening to The Business of Radio excuse me, the business of healthcare on Sirius XM channel 111. I'm John Barquette, and on today's show, we're talking about the business of medical marijuana with Peter Conti Brown, an assistant professor at Wharton, Aaron Smith, the executive director of the National Cannabis Industry Association, and Etienne Fontaine, who's the vice president and co-owner of the Berkeley Patients Group, the nation's oldest medical cannabis dispensary. Um, Etienne, I'm curious, earlier on in the show, we were talking about the challenge of banking as a medical cannabis industry participant. Right now, federal laws conflict with and preempt state laws, uh, specifically within the, the realm of banking. Uh, what do you do um, with your, you know, the cash at the end of the day? Well, uh, don't don't reveal it anything that would get you in trouble, <laughs> I guess. But I'm, no, you know, I like, wouldn't necessarily do that. But I've been kicked out of over 37 different banks wow. because of who we are and what we are. So it comes with its own set of challenges and caveats. Uh, you can't deal in FDIC-insured banks, so needless to say, uh, having no banks, no loans available, no credit cards, um, they're challenges, but they're challenges that we've been able to overcome. Uh, we're still able to um, find ways to pay our employees, and needless to say, making payroll is still a celebration every two weeks, unfortunately. Hmm. Peter, is there a difference for, say, like venture capitalists or private private loaners, loans or anything like that? Does that matter? So um, it depends on the appetite for risk that venture capitalists have, right? So uh, the, the you know, Etienne makes the point that we haven't talked about before, which is 
uh, a huge break on this industry is the lack of accessibility for loans. So in a conventional entrepreneurial sense, right, you've got uh, only a few options when you're thinking about how do I make my vision of what this product, good or service, should be. One is you just uh, do it from your own sweat equity, and then you find a market, and you retain earnings, and you grow organically. Right. Uh, second option, though, is that you you issue equity to other people, and you invite that participation. Now, that is conventionally not governed by banking laws, but it's still governed absolutely by federal law, mm. and that would be the laws governing capital markets, as overseen by the SEC uh, and state regulators as well. And so you're going to run uh, right up against the same set of concerns. Uh, fortunately, though, there, there's going to be less of a need for that the, the regular examination and supervisory environment. So I'd be interested in, in Etienne's uh, approach to uh, – um, I apologize if I'm saying that name incorrectly – but um, to venture capital enthusiasm for marijuana-related businesses. I know that there are venture capitalists who are enthusiastic and are eager to extend uh, those kinds of equity infusions in that direction. Uh, but then the last one is loans, right? Debt. And, or lack thereof. Yes. Or, or <laughs> lack thereof. And so in the marijuana context, marijuana-related businesses, right, well, to grow with retained earnings, that's basically all they've got, uh, absent having these kinds of angel or VC investors come in willing to take the risks of an angry SEC. Uh, the most obvious thing that you would do for the bank, uh, for companies this size, right, would be bank loans, and they're not available. Mm. And that just means that... Uh, growth, experimentation, innovation, all kinds of things will be uh, will be significantly impeded. Etienne, go ahead and comment. Then we have a caller on the line. Well, we are we are all self funded. We have to bootstrap our reality. It's a constant reinvestment. You know, local jurisdictions prohibit. And needless to say, with no banks and no loans available, it's not impossible to find loans. But needless to say, it is challenging if you don't know somebody. Uh, because the reality is you cannot go into a bank. What about VCs, Eddie? Have you seen any venture capitalists wanting to buy a part of your business? Uh, there are people who are interested, and there are those that are types of investors who uh, have that type of money, but they're still held off because it is federally illegal. Mm. They're, the biggest fear is of loss. So yeah. unless they have a large enough portfolio that they can take that risk, the majority won't even touch it. Um, let's go to the phones. Taiwo from Washington, D.C. I hope you got, I got your name right. Uh, you're on the business of healthcare. Thanks for the call. Yes, you did. You did get it right. Um, I saw con- former Congressman Bonner get on board recently and really interested in long term, assuming these legalities get worked out. Where would where, where where should one invest? Where could one invest if one was trying to position themselves to take advantage of what appears to be a growth a growth industry that's going to happen? Let me ask Peter and then Aaron to comment on that. So, the, in any any kind of um, if you're thinking about this as an investor, you're going to think of marijuana related businesses and in the industry itself as a kind of asset class. So you're saying, all right, what's the value of this asset class? Where can I get the biggest return? And there are basically two fundamental approaches for any asset class. One would be the thing itself, right? So you would be, uh, walk over to Antien and say, hey, I want to make you a loan or I want to uh, give you some equity. I want to participate in this. You could be an entrepreneur yourself and say, all right, I'm going to create a marijuana-related business. Uh, or you could uh, uh, so, or you could try to be an assistant to the asset class. So think about all the people who started getting server farms uh, during uh, the explosion of the Internet. Well, they weren't really creating new Internet-related content on either Web 1.0 or 2.0, but they were trying to market business-to-business services that would help facilitate this. Um, and so uh, there are savvy investment on both sides of that question, um, whether you're facing consumers within the industry or you're facing businesses within that industry. Um, but again, the question of assuming those legalities get worked out, is the, it's the entire ballgame, really. Aaron, you want to com- care to comment? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that and, and would add that some of the greatest opportunities are in uh, in terms of investment in this industry are in those areas of an, you know ancillary and tangential um, parts of the industry that do not actually touch the plant or handle the plant. Uh, there's great growth in compliance. This is a heavily regulated industry, so we're seeing uh, you know, software that, that manages compliance for businesses, um, multiple companies growing in that in that area. Uh, childproof packaging uh, and the 
there's so many just about any kind of uh, business opportunity you can think of in any other industry, uh, there is something suited for cannabis uh, as well. You know, to move more quickly than uh, allowing for our legal system to work itself through, uh, I would invite innovators to think through how to manage uh, with transparency and efficiency a cash-based system, right, so that payroll can be easier, whether you're thinking about armored trucks or their alternatives or some way to think about banking without banking. So there could be some real fintech opportunities perhaps but right now, our fintech uh, system functions on top of the banking system, and uh, that foundation is the is the issue we've been talking about uh, all day today. But that that could be another place. Etienne, as an owner of one of these businesses, um, what what is you know your if you could change one thing, what what would it be? What what is your your the need right now, greatest need right now for you? Um, banking. It's banking. Two ADE. Those two are the biggest things, and that's why we're also founding members of the National Cannabis Industries Association is because we needed a lobbying voice that would echo nationally as opposed to locally. And these are issues that we all face in all uh, 29 medical states and in the nine states where we allow for adult use. Got it. What was the second thing you said? You said banking, and what was the second one? 280E. 280E is a tax... um, situation that was uh, created, uh, which basically means 100% of your uh, sales and everything are taxable by the federal government. And this is a tax code that has basically shut down as well as destroyed quite a few dispensaries along the way. And it's one of the things we have to change at the national level, because having any type of business tax is already challenging as it is. But then can you think about you know, 100% of everything that you do is now taxable to the federal government because it is illegal. That is 280E, and this is a big problem within our industry that has to be addressed. If, if uh, I, I told my producer that I was going to talk about 280E before the show, I would have gotten in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and now I'm about to ask a follow-up question about it to Peter here. Yeah. Uh, B- Peter, does that right? I mean, so this, do you, are you familiar with this law or laws like I'm, it? I'm, uh, do I, other I'm, businesses face this kind of type of rule? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, so the you know think about all of the um, scandals we've seen when General Electric said you know our tax liability uh, for the last ten years has been zero. Zero. And that's because they are able to use the tax code to write off losses, to write off investment, to write off all kinds of different issues, so that their tax base is only on U.S. generated income. Um, uh, and Eddie, and you know far more about this, Aaron, too, I'm sure, than I do. But is the idea there that you do not get access to any of these kinds of deductions? So you can't carry forward losses, non-operating losses, anything like that? Is that the idea? Aaron, yeah, the, to you. In, in the, the businesses that are, you know, what under federal law considered trafficking in uh, controlled substances, Schedule One or Two, and of which cannabis is still Schedule One, right. uh, cannot deduct any of the expenses associated with, with trafficking, right. uh, quote unquote. And that means payroll, rent, marketing, compliance costs, uh, and such. And and really has, uh, it's really amazing that the industry is growing at the rate <laughs> that it is, given that operators like Etienne are facing seventy to even eighty, ninety percent effective tax rates. Wow. Wow. Aaron, you need to get off this call and get back to work, my friend. <laughs> 280E could be a whole other show. Right. Yeah, okay, right. Well, we'll see if that one gets past the screeners. But, um, okay, so we have only just a, a couple more minutes left here. Um, Aaron, what's, what does your uh, agenda look like for the rest of the year? Well, you know, we're seeing, as we discussed earlier, we're seeing you know, significant growth in mainstream support for regulating marijuana and leaving uh, marijuana policies up to the states. Uh, in Congress. And, you know, while you know, Congress is moving into the midterm season, we're seeing, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats uh, taking this issue on to, you know, almost fighting over who, you know, which party is going to lead on cannabis. Uh, we're going to see uh, any day now, uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is going to introduce a very sweeping legislation that would uh, deschedule or uh, essentially legalize cannabis coast to coast. Uh, we also have you know, more probably moderate legislation that, uh, that the president has already uh, suggested that he would support called the States Act, which would uh, essentially allow uh, states to develop their own programs, as we've been, as we've been talking about. Uh, that was introduced by Senator Cory Gardner from here in Colorado and, and Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts. 
uh, already has uh, several co-sponsors on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, ultimately going into the midterm, I think this is going to be an issue that uh, both parties embrace uh, because it's it's very popular among younger voters, independent voters, uh, the voters that, that uh, each party is, is fighting for. Um, when they come back, uh, let's make sure that they stick to their promises and actually uh, give this legislation uh, a hearing and a vote. Uh, I'm uh, at the point where I think that, you know, on the, at least on the House side, we have support. We know we have the support for reforms like banking uh, and and states' rights. Uh, but congressional leadership has, you know, thus far not allowed uh, those votes to move forward. And I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, whichever party uh, controls Congress next year, that, that that will change very, very soon. And Aaron, in, in 30 seconds, do you, do you foresee at any point the Trump administration maybe agreeing to legislation that could get through the House and Senate? I think this might be the one uh, bipartisan issue that the Trump administration embraces. Uh, uh, The president himself said a couple of weeks ago that he supported the the Gardner legislation, the States Act. Uh, We, uh, you know, during the campaign, he uh, campaigned in places like Colorado and said that he supported states' rights on the issue. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't see uh, really, there's no political reason uh, that anybody would, would, you know, turn away from 70 percent of the voters, which have said that they don't support uh, federal interference on this issue. And I, I think that uh, they're, they're seeing the same polls we are, and we're going to see some really big changes very soon. Aaron, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. I think he's, <laughs> he, he's the guy who's standing in your way. The only man left in the country that wants to put people <laughs> behind bars for medical marijuana. Okay. Unfortunately, he is the attorney general. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys should come on my other show, Attorney Generals Today, and we can talk about that more. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. And I want to thank my guests for joining me. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being here. Uh, where can our listeners keep up with you and the work that you're doing? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. or um, my, my academic research is on my website on, at Wharton. And Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Where should people follow uh, your exploits? Uh, yeah, we're on Twitter on NCIA org, uh, and our website is thecannabisindustry.org. Thanks right. so much for having me. Thank you, Etienne. Thanks for joining from California. Good luck with your with your dispensary. Thank you kindly. You can reach us at at BPG Tweet, and I'm at ATN four two zero. That okay. letter is ATN four two zero. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.